The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Before Cap did that, he knew the consequence, and I think other athletes did. To me, if you really are woke as an athlete, then you know the price you're about to pay. Welcome to the new rebooted Edge of Sports podcast brought to you by The Nation magazine. This week in the lab, we have the host of ESPN's flagship 6 p.m. Sports Center program, Jamel Hill. We're going to speak to her about what it is like to turn Sports Center into SC6 or The Six. Also, this week, March Madness is upon us, and I've got some choice words about how bracketology is evil. Evil, I tells ya. We also have a Just Stand Up Award to the women of USA Hockey and a Just Sit Down Award. In addition, we got Kaepernick Watch and we got some breaking news on some merchandise as well. All of that and more. But first, Jamel Hill. Twentieth anniversary, death of Biggie. You did this as we proceed. To give you what you need, welcome to the best 60 minutes of your day. J.M., ready to get live. Today's agenda on the first day of NFL free agency, get money. You want to talk about the draft being armed and dangerous? Ain't too many can bang with us? Okay, label them notorious. It definitely was, and if you're a Browns fan, you got a reason to throw your rollies in the sky. Is it crazy that he may go back to Jerry and say, oh, give me one more chance? And so Jerry Jones might say, come creep here in my TP, in my Valley Ranch TP. Sometimes it's more money, more problems. Never let them know your next move. (laughs) Don't you know bad boys move in silence? See, the Patriots, we're not used to them spending and all that sweet whining and dining. They got the cheese, eggs, and Welch is great, right? People might be saying, damn, why you you want to stick us for our paper? <laughs> True player for real. Ask Puff Daddy. But for now, it's time for the doing too much countdown, which has been a terror since the public school era. <laughs> so you want to be hardcore <laughs> at the Big East tournament. Old school, new school, need to learn, though. <laughs> burn, baby, burn like Disco Inferno. I feel like it's a microcosm of what you guys are trying to do with the six. So how much planning went into that? Well, um, we knew that we wanted to, you know, do our own kind of tribute to Biggie. And it was just a matter of, you know, what was the best execution of that. And we thought a fun way to do it would be to work as many Biggie references into our show, into maybe some of our, you know, bars and graphic bars. And um, it was just kind of funny because the last time we thought about, you know, commemorating somebody who – is unique and special and revered in pop culture. It was Eddie Murphy. It was his 50th birthday. And we thought about doing an entire show full of uh, Eddie Murphy references or maybe just specifically coming to America. And that was the origin of how we wound up doing uh, the Coming to America, you know, spoof that we did uh, geared toward the weekend where it was Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather fighting the NFL draft, Kentucky Derby. It was like one of the best and busiest sports weekends of the year. So, yeah, I mean, this was just, you know, our way of, you know, celebrating somebody who was a, a central figure in, in hip-hop and 
you know, obviously we all miss dearly. And, um, sure. you know, it just was kind of a, it, it, it's just so surreal that that much time has passed since uh, his death because for, I think, a lot of people who were, you know, around and into his music at that time, it still feels like something that just happened yesterday. True. But it was also surreal to see it on the 6 p.m. Sports Center. So, oh, like the, the big biggie tribute. So, it necessitates two follow up questions. Uh, take whoever you want. Like, what what's the reaction in Bristol when you and Michael do something like that? And what's the reaction of the audience? The reaction in, in Bristol internally is great. I mean, the whole reason why they put us in this position to do the six o'clock sports center is that that's what they wanted. Um, they wanted. Uh, you know, two people who had thoughtful opinions about sports, but also were, you know, very well aware and in tune to this world that's happening uh, around us. And the thing about, you know, that's different, I think, about today's sports audience, and it's something that, you know, we try to keep in mind as as we reshape, you know, Sports Center and and other shows, is that the majority of people out there are not intense sports fans. And I think for so long in sports, we've had the luxury of building programming and building, you know, publications and media around the intense sports fan. But as we see increasingly that if you want to reach out and expand the audience, you have to connect with the casual sports fan. And see, the casual sports fan does love sports, does like sports, likes games. But the casual sports fans love the culture of sports um, and the culture that's built around sports. They want to know not only how athletes play, but what they're into. Like, what kind of music do they listen to? What kind of movies do they like? Um, what are their lives like? You know, what are the situations in sports that are relatable to real life? So, it's just a different kind of, of sports fan to some degree. You know, it, it feels like you're taking the mentality that you did 15 years ago when you did the, the drive, the drives with the app. Yeah. The driving with, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I've always thought that um, that was a connective tissue in sports that wasn't explored enough. And so, um, you know, that is what they wanted us to bring to the six o'clock, which for that kind of viewer is a very abrupt change. So internally, the support couldn't be, it couldn't be higher. You know, they are really behind what we do, and they told us from day one when they first proposed this idea of us moving to this spot that they did not want us to change one iota of who we were. And they have followed through on that promise and given us the support, the resources, and everything to make that come true. Now, in terms of the reaction for the audience, the people who followed us and knew about us at noon on ESPN2, they're all in, and they love what we've done uh, in terms of making what we used to do at noon into a bigger, grander, and slicker production. For his and hers, just so folks. Yep, for his and hers, that, that we the show that we had at noon before we took over um, the spot. Now, it, is there is the stick to sports crowd out there, you know, uh, waving, um, you know, their torches? <laughs> yeah, but I think they have to realize that that things are changing in sports rapidly. I mean, they've probably always kind of been this way, but I think now it's forced a lot of things uh, that were traditionally set up one way to change. So, yeah, we hear the stick to sports. And, and the, look, the, the, what's so funny and amusing to me about the stick to sports crowd is that I'm not convinced they've ever watched our show or they only watch and pay attention when we do things that aren't sports because still – for as much as we make references to pop culture, as much as we did that Biggie tribute and everything, it's not like we stopped the programming and for 10 minutes did a complete Biggie tribute. We did it very subtle in a very subtle way that if you were listening and you're a Biggie fan, you understood because we were just dropping his references mm-hmm. within sports conversations. So the sports was still going. And for most of our shows, um, that's the way it is. Like We still spend 90% of our show discussing sports. But if we spend 45 seconds here, a minute there, have a show open that recreates a different world, which is a minute and 11 seconds, I think you can spare that in what is generally a sports show. Mm. Yeah, the different world thing was brilliant. I actually had a question for you about that in a little bit. And, no, you're doing great work. I assume you're drinking champagne when you're thirsty. Um, <laughs> and g- given how well the show is going, I did want to ask you this. You know, you've got a very active Twitter account you tend to retweet people who are racist, sexist, and I've, always, I've wanted to ask you, 
is that for your own kind of amusement or are you making a political statement so people know what it is that you're actually dealing with in terms of trying to reshape sports center and being a black woman in this world, traditionally white male world of sports? It's actually both. And it's probably more for my own amusement because it is <laughs> something just so absurd and preposterous about it that people actually think that way, number one, and two, that they're so they're so confident in such stupid opinions that they would actually put them into print and send them to somebody. And the other layer of it is that we have to stop, you know, like a lot of people, they constantly say, oh, don't feed the trolls. They, When you say that, you treat it like it's a select small group of people that it's impossible that it's possible to ignore. You know, this is, you know, they don't under, I don't think people make the correlation that the same person sometimes that tweets me things, calling me out of my name, you know, saying I, they wish I would die, calling me all kinds of racial slurs, might be the dude that's putting your tires on, mm. might be the dude that sits next to you at your cubicle, okay? So I, I want people to understand, you know, what's out there, and especially if you are somebody of color and you're put in the position that we're put in, you know, it's a whole different ballgame. I mean, throughout our careers, Mike and I have always dealt with that kind of criticism. But once we move to this spot, the intensity of it um, has been a little jarring and interesting at the same time. Interesting in the sense that it's just funny how things are perceived when you have, you know, two black hosts who, you know, have opinions and credibility versus how other things are, are greeted. Because I, I, I've used this example, and I don't use it because um, I don't think you should be doing it. I use it because it's, it's applicable. Like, I love Love Scott Van Pelt. He's a great dude. He's been one of our biggest supporters. He gave us such terrific advice as we made this next step. But it's just funny how SVP can have all five RIP before he passed, and that's seen as cool and edgy. And I'm talking externally, not internally. But if we do it, you know, why don't y'all go back to BET? Mm. And so it's just interesting because I do get a lot of people who – tweet me who claim to be fans of SVP and I, I mean I think SVP, SVP might love hip hop and drop more hip hop references than I ever have in my whole career okay mm-hmm. um, but there's the double standard is that you know we get go back to BT and I don't like this urban sports center yeah like that's some serious medium is the message stuff yeah or, or just like like we're or y'all too political it's about, I really love that one like Mike and I are on TV breaking down the Affordable Care Act. Like we, we don't we don't do that, you know. And so just because they have now and, and even with this whole dumb narrative about ESPN promoting liberalism and we've become the liberal network and all and all that. But one, the only reason they're saying that I think personally is because you're all of a sudden seeing people of color in very high profile positions. And so in the minds of the small minded when even despite the fact that all those people, you know, myself, Mike, Carrie, Bomani, deserve and have earned and worked for those positions, that's seen as something that's only being given to us because there is some crowd of people that's chanting diversity and ESPN must relent to this massive wave of, quote, liberalism by promoting people of color and women. And it's not even coded. Like, it's just <laughs> you just see right through there. it because I just I just find it interesting that – it coincided with, you know, people want to say it was about, you know, Donald Trump and people having political opinions. It's just interesting to me that the liberal narrative started when you saw black folks and women start getting promoted at, at ESPN. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure you and Michael have talked about this yourselves. Um, I keep thinking when you were talking about this time where myself and a female sports writer who's a friend of mine, we tweeted out the same article and the same troll responded to me telling me to shut up and responded to her with a rape threat. Mm. And so it's like, wow, the difference between being a woman and a man on Twitter. And have you and Michael discussed the intensity of the response or the hate you get? And is it more for you than Michael? Do you feel that difference? I think you pointed out a very, the very difference that can be there in the criticism. Um, uh, As you, I'm sure you saw the, the public service ad that uh, ESPN and Sarah Spain did, um, and uh, that was, you know, kind of a, a real, 
eye opener for and Julie DeCaro also uh, out of Chicago. Uh, I think she works at six seventy. That was as they you know made um, the guys uh, read you know some of the hate tweets that they received and how awful and terrible they are. And of course, I'm not surprised as what happens in a lot of these these kinds of cases is that everybody then wants to start having a um, who's got it worse conversation as opposed to paying attention to what the actual issue is. And so, of course, you had some men saying, well, you know, male sports writers, they get that all the time. And, well, no, the difference is that, you know, with us being women and um, there being a certain physical vulnerability there is that, yeah, somebody might threaten to, you know, beat up Mike, but I'm going to get the threat about, I'll choke you out or I'll do and and it's you're going to take that differently because you know the anything that's that's physically or anyone who's physically threatening to to harm me I have to take that with a whole different level of seriousness because it, you know I mean I just do and so you know Mike is definitely aware of that and um he's been one of my you know biggest supporters and um, he's a great champion, um, and not just for myself, but, you know, for all women in in this company. And he's an ally. As they say, we have this running joke because whenever there's a discussion about domestic violence or a gender issue, uh, you know, a producer will come running to me asking if I could be on a, you know, a show or whatever. And Mike will get offended be like, oh, so I, I guess I just don't care about women, huh? <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, no, I mean, that, that's that, that's real is that, you know, for a lot of women who are in sports, it's just way too much harassment that continues to fuel this idea that this is a space in which we do not belong. And yet you've pushed forward. And every time I speak to someone like yourself, Jamel, who I, I see is just like such a legit trailblazer, I always like knowing the origin story, you know, like the way they always do it with Luke Cage or what have you. Yeah, like with the comic heroes. <laughs> exactly. The origin story. Everybody's got one. For some people, it's a book. For some people, it's a teacher. For some people, it was a coach. It was a, There's a something that people's minds usually go back to to say, hey, this is when I really found the resolve to push forward and try to achieve what I want to achieve. What's your origin story? Well, I think a lot of my resolve comes from how I grew up. And, you know, the reason, you know, somebody on Twitter or um, these, you know, social media thugs – don't bother me uh, is because I have seen and experienced and dealt with way worse. And so I always keep that, you know, perspective. I mean, I grew up in Detroit. Um, my mother and father, they were both, uh, they both battled drug addiction. Me and my father were estranged for a little while and we reconnected when I was a young adult and, you know, have built a, a good relationship since. You know, I grew up on welfare. I mean, you know, I had to, um, you know, I didn't have a lot you know, growing up, and uh, I luckily I saw both my parents get clean, and they've been clean for a while, um, but yeah, I mean, there was a lot of family struggles that I experienced, and um, based off what I experienced, it was always in me, I think, a God-given resolve, and just this idea that um, some of the bad decisions and circumstances my parents put themselves through, I never wanted to experience a lot of the hardship and the heartache that they did. And so, um, you know, that's why I got an academic scholarship so that, I, you know, I, my school was paid for and I didn't have to, you know, worry or rely on anybody um, to, you know, for my success. So uh, I think that work ethic and that resolve has stayed with me, you know, throughout my career. And I don't need to give, my pep talk, give myself a pep talk to keep going because it's just, it's just natural to me. Right. Now, Black Detroit in the 70s and 80s had, of course, all kinds of hardship, but there was also a tremendous political legacy from the 1960s. Did you grow up around political people who gave you a sense of knowledge or self that also allowed you to push forward? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my grandmother, um, my grandmother and my mother, they were both uh, very politically active. They were both very... Um, the Black Panthers, like my, my mother talks about this all the time, she had breakfast every day because the Black Panthers in her neighborhood had a free breakfast program. 
and my grandmother, you know, she also was extremely politically uh, active and well-read. And I remember when I was a kid and I would complain about being bored, she would make me go pick out a book from her library and read it. And in her library, she would have things like, you know, Man Child from the Promised Land and Native Son and all these, all this great and excellent you know, literature about black history. And so that was sort of my early beginnings of learning about, you know, learning about my own people. And I will say that it's hard to even put into words the benefit of when you do grow up in a black city like Detroit and you go to a black high school. And um, I'll borrow a line that Mike had. Uh, he's like, I didn't have to go to HBCU because I, I went to a black high school and I felt the same way. It's like, man, I, that was all I knew my entire life. It's just black people everywhere. And so I think growing up in that environment, it gave me a strong sense of self and realized through a huge, or at least a nice little chunk of my childhood, Coleman Young was a mayor. And that might be one of the blackest mayors of all time. <laughs> um, and so it was always this um this sense of knowing who I was. I didn't have to discover that when I went to Michigan State. Was Michigan State culture shock for you? It was because that was the first time I'd ever had close, regular contact with white people. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you show up on campus day one, it's 40,000 students, number one. Number two, um, you know, I had white sweet mates and a, a, uh, well, I had a Colombian roommate first, but then I had a, you know, I had a white roommate. So it was just an, it wasn't awkward. It was actually, it was never awkward at all. And I didn't, you know, uh, treat it like some kind of scientific experiment. But some of those early conversations were hilarious because they were, you know, not only white, but they were from really, really white areas. Because, um, in fact, my sweetmates, they were from Sterling Heights, which uh, growing up we used to call Sterling Whites. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and we, we still remain, like, great friends. And so it, it was it was not just the exposure to white people, but obviously it was the exposure to a lot of different cultures, you know, being friends with people um, who were, you know, Japanese and Chinese and Latino friends and learning about La Raza and like all this other stuff. And it was, that to me is why I still call going to Michigan State the, you know, the greatest uh, experience of, of my life because I was able to fit the connective tissues with the different cultures and see how they were all parallel. And this also helps explain why you caped so hard for the Spartans in every opportunity. <laughs> it's not yeah, just about it sports. Like it, it is not. And I think for most people, when they cape for their college, that's really what it's about. It's so about you, their own I mean, memories. you hit on something important. Yeah, you have your own memories. And while, and sometimes why I do cape for athletes to go back to school, to stay in school, because I'm like, man, y'all just don't know. Y'all never are going to get that time back. Um, even though I realize that, you know, a lot of them aren't able to live or be involved in the full college experience that I have because, you know, they keep you, they keep athletes very segregated in college. They're only with other athletes or only with their own team, and they don't get to experience that fullness of what college is really about. Have you ever talked to folks like, like Scoop Jackson about having radical parents and whether that affected you guys getting into uh, sports casting or having the resolve to push through it? Has there ever been like a a meeting of the minds. And I can think of some other folks too who I know are prominent uh, African-American people in this world whose parents were political. You know, that's a, I've never thought of it that way, but I think you're, you're right. You're onto something because. Um, Scoop's got like Fred Hampton stories from growing up in Chicago. Oh, wow. So. Um, yeah. I mean, I've thought about it. I didn't think about it till you said it rather. And that, yeah, there is something to be said for when your first models of seeing how people deal with struggle are your parents and you see how they just, um, they have the resolve to push through it. It just kind of transfers to some degree, you know, it's like part of the reason why I'm so stubborn in my beliefs is because my mother is that way. So uh, it's something I'm happy to inherit. Jamel, first of all, you've been so generous with your time. I appreciate it. I had some listeners email me some questions they wanted me to ask you that can maybe answer them like machine gun quick rat tat tat sure and then we'll let you go don't want to keep you too long but these are but i when i said to folks on facebook that i was interviewing you people just like exploded and were like oh please ask her this please ask her this so a guy named kalechi said to me how do you feel about 
and you being you, Jamel, how do you feel about the closing of Joe Lewis Arena and the opening of Little Caesars Arena? As a Detroiter, what do you think of Mike Illich's legacy? It, Joe Lewis, obviously, is, is historic. It always have a special place. But I am happy that it's closing. Um, only in the sense that it is, I've covered many Red Wings games there. It's like the worst arena. It's, it's raggedy. Like, it's really raggedy. And so I'm glad that they're able to get a new arena. And more importantly, the biggest thing is the, is the Pistons moving downtown, to be honest. Um, that that part is huge. But Mike Illich, I mean, his his legacy in Detroit is just it's so big. I mean, when you think of the Mount Rushmore more of people that have meant the most um, to Detroit, he's definitely on there. And um, – when it wasn't fashionable, he invested in Detroit and stayed invested in Detroit. Uh, he obviously has a great deal to do with why, you know, some of our sports teams are downtown. And, you know, he's always been a, a champion, uh, you know, for the cities, uh, for the city. And part of the reason why I will never take any little Caesar slander anywhere I go. <laughs> so a, a gentleman by the name of Emmett Bean wants to know that if Colin Kaepernick does not get signed, does that do anything to the future of woke athletes, in your opinion? Well, the question seems to be built around the idea of the consequence. Exactly. And I think before Cap did that, he knew the consequence, and I think other athletes did. To me, if, you're, if you really are woke as an athlete, then you know the price you're about to pay. And so I think they're aware of that, and those that want to still engage and um, – exhibit large form, you know, any kind of protest, um, I think they have to just hit that crossroad and understand what they're getting into. And that's why when people kept with this sort of criticism that he was only doing it for publicity, I'm just like, well, what do y'all think is about to happen here? You say that, like, this is going to lead to him, you know, uh, he might have a higher profile, but it definitely wasn't going to help him get another job. Um, and I think he knew that, and he was more than prepared to accept that as a final consequence. Uh, so I think that that was already out there. That danger existed before Kaepernick, and I think they knew it. And that's part of the reason why you haven't seen many take the kind of aggressive stand that he has. And some of it all depends on positioning. I mean, he did it especially. It was really risky for him to do it at the point in his career that he was in because had he done this, say, the year that he took them to the Super Bowl, or considered, you know, one of the five best quarterbacks in the NFL, then somebody would have, regardless of political beliefs, would have gladly signed him, gladly. But he did this at a riskier time when there was definitely um, a lot of people who questioned his ability as a player. Obviously didn't like his political stance. I mean, the the outcome that was very realistic was him never playing in the NFL again. And he had a tight year, too, when you go inside the numbers. Not only that, when you look at what he was surrounded with, he, he, he performed um, a lot better uh, than people actually realized. And, exactly. I mean, I think the NFL blackballing him is clear because you mean to tell me he's not better than Geno Smith or E.J. Manuel? They both have jobs. So... I mean, I think it's pretty obvious the statement that NFL teams are making. Okay, my, my, my buddy Doug Harris, who's a terrific filmmaker out in the Bay Area, once drafted by the NBA, actually, he wanted to ask what you think about LeVar Ball because it's so polarizing. Like, do you like seeing the, this man, like, really try to take control of the destiny for his kids or does it rub you the wrong way because he's so clearly, you know, out front taking all the lightning bolts and sticking his chin out? What's your LeVar Ball take? I love it. I love him doing it, and because it's not only him taking front and center and control of his children's business affairs mostly, and how the way they're, you know, they're marketing and branding, it's also to me just such a direct and needed shot at the NCAA. Because as he pointed out himself, and and it's very true, is that see if UCLA does that, if they market his sons, then that's just business. That's just the way that's, – that's the price of the scholarship. Or, you know, if an agent comes in and starts to be his mouthpiece, you know, once, you know, he declares, then that's just the way things go. But now that his father, who realistically, that's the person you want to do it, um, to be front and center, to be empowering them from a business standpoint, now everybody got a problem with it. Mm. And so I love the fact that he's 
clearly instilled a strong sense of self in his children. And more importantly, he is impressing on them to control everything about anything related to how they are branded. And that's important because we see a lot of athletes, especially black athletes, get taken advantage of. And he's already putting them up on game from the beginning and keeping it in the family. And I love that my colleague, Jay Williams, makes this comparison to the Kardashians. He's not doing that in a matter of disrespect. Not saying that, you know, LeVar is empty and shallow. And even though there's some showmanship to what he's doing very clearly. But Chris Jenner is considered a genius, okay? And I'm looking at LeVar Ball in the same way. Is that somebody who's trying to make sure that his kids understand the long view of the game they're in? Yeah, and at least his kids have discernible talent, too, which yeah, makes it they do. And, and, and look, everybody gets all caught up about, you know, what their basketball future holds. The way I look at it is if they graduate or, you know, if they wind up being productive citizens, that's a win. They don't need to become Steph Curry. Uh, you know, Lonzo doesn't need to become Steph Curry to be considered a successful person. If he is contributing to society, has a sense of self, educated, that's all that matters. Mm. And then I guess last question here. Thanks so much for your time. This is just from me. My audience question here is what music do you listen to when you need a pickup, when you need to work, when you need the musical equivalent of a double shot of espresso? What's your music? <laughs> oh, man, that's such a good question. Um it, you know, I feel like uh, it's almost like when people ask you your top five MCs, like that's something that could change day to day. But um, I would say that for me, um, when I want to write, like the, the, the latest, not write, I would say when I want to kind of get in a, a creative space, the latest thing I've been listening to is um, an album that Jazzy Jeff made with Glenn Lewis called Chase and Goosebumps. That's been, that's exceptional. And, um, he uh, told us about it at NBA All-Star Weekend, and he was just like, I'm telling you, it's the best work I've ever done. And I was like, yeah, that's a big statement. But it is, um, I'll say, among the best. Um, that he's definitely done. Yeah, people don't know that Jazzy Jeff was a legend before he ever even met Will Smith. Totally, and they don't realize some of the legendary music he's been able to produce since, you know, he was being thrown out the house by Uncle Phil, I mean, Jill Scott. I mean, he's responsible for her first album, which is phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, I listened to that. Um, I also, uh, for a good pick-me-up, I listen to uh, most deaf, listen to, or I listen to Black Star, I should say. <laughs> um, and uh, probably the other thing I might throw in there, I like to go old school. Like today, I was um, I was like really jamming on the way to work because I was listening to the best of of Uptown Records. Man, you just forget how many hits they had. Little Chris Williams in there, some Jodeci, like. It was a really enjoyable. It got me into the right mood to come in here and, and do work in these sports streets. Chris Williams, you mean the, the, the well-dressed brother from the bank? Yes, that's right. Kareem Akbar, <laughs> the educated, educated brother, from the brother from the bank. Thank you. Oh, man, <laughs> yeah. you are such a culture vulture of the first order. And I, <laughs> I think we went full circle here because you started with Biggie and ended by talking about Brooklyn, New York City, where they make murals of Biggie and Black Star. So... Thank you so much for your time, and good luck on the six. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. You know, I always love talking to you at uh, at any point, and you like you talking about me. I mean, you out here doing completely amazing work. So you keep it up as well. That was Jamel Hill. Check out what Michael Smith and she are doing on the 6 p.m. Sports Center, how they're trying to actually remake sports coverage at the Worldwide Leader. Now, a quick word from The Nation magazine. Look, Edge of Sports is produced 
by the nation. Definitely check out this week's issue. There is a great piece about how anti-immigrant policies are really hurting the economy. This is some necessary myth-busting right here. If you don't already subscribe to The Nation, please do so at thenation.com slash subscribe. And now it's time for some choice words about the NCAA tournament, a.k.a. the evil of bracketology and what it hath wrought. Okay, so the quote of this year's NCAA tournament was spoken before a minute of action even took place on the court. It was said by LeVar Ball, the garrulous hype man father of UCLA star freshman Lonzo Ball. And he's also the dad of upcoming prepsters, LaMelo Ball and LiAngelo Ball. He's got a little thing going on uh, with his kids and trying to brand them as they become, hopefully, pros in the future. So LeVar Ball was asked if he believed he was, quote-unquote, exploiting his sons. His response, what do you think UCLA is doing? Now, half the sports commentariat reached for their fainting couches, and the other half said, damn right, because nothing unites the cynical and the saccharine quite like March Madness. It's a time for bracketology, office pools, crash courses, and three-point percentages of schools you didn't even know existed, and of course, the articles that cover just how exploitative this operation remains alongside poetic payons about how this is the greatest experience in the world for these kids. And paying them would be like telling them that Santa Claus isn't real. My own personal rule is to just ask the players, would you like more rights? Would you like to be paid? And 10 times out of 10, they will share their thought that they would rather be paid than not. There is also the extremely important observation that Patrick Ruby of Vice Sports made that you cannot separate our own willingness to accept this grotesque, constitution-free system from racism to affect the attitude crystallized by Colin Cowherd at Fox Sports who said, and I quote, I don't think paying all college athletes is great. Most 19-year-olds are going to spend it, and let's be honest, on weed and kicks, end quote. Look, you don't have to be Al Sharpton to hear the racial coding and what Colin Cowherd is trying to say and how that line of reasoning allows consumers to be able to sit back, relax, and enjoy the games and not worry about the exploitation taking place in this billion-dollar-a-year endeavor. So racism has allowed this system to persist, but the economic root of this exploitation is bracketology itself, those printouts and betting pools that has turned the interest in this amateur endeavor into a happening to rival the Super Bowl. The NCAA tournament really hasn't been around that long. Bracketology is a phenomenon that only harkens back to 1985. That was the first year when you had a 64-team bracket. That was also the year of perhaps the most compelling run in tournament history when the underdog Villanova Wildcats beat the almighty Georgetown Hoyas by two points in what's known as the perfect game by shooting an unreal 78% from the floor and beating the most dominant college team of its era. The 1986, 1987, 1988, and 1989 finals were similarly heart-stopping, decided by an average of 2.5 points. In fact, the biggest game in that stretch was 1988, when perhaps the greatest underdog in college basketball history, Danny Manning's Kansas Jayhawks, beat the Oklahoma Sooners by four points. Now, I remember that game because I was watching it, losing my mind. So you couple that with the early round upsets and the chaotic nature of a sporting event where the basketball fanatic in your office has about the same chance of picking winners as someone who chose their final four teams on the basis of coolest mascots, which explains my enduring belief in the Coastal Carolina Chanticleers. And we have ourselves a national phenomenon. March Madness, a billion-dollar annual operation responsible for 89% of the NCAA's operating budget, paying for the six- and seven-figure salaries of people patrolling the $50 million NCAA headquarters in Indianapolis. This nexus of labor exploitation and bracketology is seen most clearly when we look at the coaching salaries in this NCAA tournament. The five highest paid coaches in this year's round of 64 earn an average of roughly $5.6 million a year, with Mike Krzyzewski at Duke at the top of that pyramid at $7.3 million. 
1984, the year before bracketology began, the average coaching salary was closer to $50,000 than five million bucks. John Wooden, who coached UCLA to 10 championships in 12 seasons and retired in 1975, never made more than $35,000 a season. I asked UCLA all-time great and Wooden protege Kareem Abdul-Jabbar just how much John Wooden would make if he coached today. And the normally taciturn Kareem laughed and said simply, they couldn't afford him. But take a step back from this, and it is utterly stunning. The highest paid college coaching job in 1975 was valued at 35 grand a year. In 2017 dollars, that would be an annual take of about $159,000. The cult of bracketology has taken a $159,000 a year job and turned it into one that pays 7.3 million. There are a lot of reasons for this. Cable television contracts, sneaker money, and Madison Avenue have all chased our obsessions with brackets and the attendant madness of March, flooding this operation with capital. Yet the reasons coaching salaries have exploded are less important than how little change that is produced for the players themselves. If the economic structure of this thing we call amateur college basketball has altered so dramatically, the situation of the players is painfully similar to the days when Kareem patrolled the paint at Pauley Pavilion. In fact, the most tangible differences for players compared to Kareem's days are that they travel greater distances, play more games, risk more injury, and have less flexibility in terms of the classes that they can take. In other words, as the money has become greater, the level of exploitation has increased. As Kareem himself wrote for Jacobin Magazine in 2014, life for student athletes is no longer the quaint Americana fantasy of the homecoming bonfire and a celebration at the malt shop. It's big business in which everyone is making money. Everyone except the 18 to 21 year old kids who every game risk a permanent career-ending injury. In the name of fairness, we must bring an end to the indentured servitude of college athletes and start paying them what they are worth, end quote. Kareem is absolutely correct. Without a massive organizing effort of players themselves, they will never have a seat at this table. They will remain like characters sprung from the mind of Rod Serling, the workers who prepare the meal and are the meal itself. As we fill out our brackets, remember that our office betting pools are the most economically above-board part of this entire operation. The NCAA is a zombie system feeding on the flesh of the people they are supposed to be educating. It's an operation that needs to be wrecked and rebuilt, not just for the good of the players, but for the good of the rest of us who are complicit in this madness. And now, as is often the case, after I got some choice words, my co-producer, David Tigaboo, has a little bit of question and pushback or whatever it is that's going on inside the transom of his beautiful mind about what I just said. Why do you got to make me feel bad about filling out a bracket? I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad about anything. I mean, it's all about just being a conscious sports fan. I usually fill out a bracket. In full honesty, I didn't this year more because I was sick than anything else. But honest and true... I mean, if you want to fill out a bracket, fill out a bracket. Whatever gets you through the night. This world is tough. Uh, I, I'm starting to feel that anything that provides even a momentary escape is a good thing. It's just a reminder to do it consciously that the economics of college basketball have become so absurd. And bracketology is both a symbol of that, but also a cause of that. That leads me into my next question. Is there a way to appreciate the game of basketball, college basketball, while also recognizing the gross injustices that sort of underlie the game itself? And, and what does that look like? I get that question a lot. Usually it's about the NFL. Like, how can one enjoy being an NFL fan knowing all of the dirty dealings that go on behind the scenes in the sport itself? And I'll answer it the way I answer that for everything, is that I really think that it's a personal choice. I mean, people have to make their own choices about what they can live with and what they can't in their daily and weekly lives. Now, if there are large political boycott campaigns, that changes the equation as far as consumption. But when it comes to individual consumption, and I don't care if you're talking about sports, if you're talking about a brand of deli meat, if you're talking about whether or not you choose to wear Nikes. I haven't worn Nikes since I heard Chuck D say, I like Nike, but wait a minute, you know, way back when. Uh, so, but that's like my personal choice. 
about Nike and how they know they do business, but I would never look down on somebody who did wear Nikes, for example, or did watch college basketball because you got to make your own choices with this thing. I mean, for me, you know, I have a very shifting morality when it comes to all these sports. Like in years past, I've been a huge college football fan. That's become more and more difficult um, as I look at the injuries. So for me, like the equation of the injuries plus the exploitation plus the brain damage makes it very difficult for me to consume as a fan. Uh, similarly, when it comes to uh, college basketball, it's like I'm, you know, I'm borderline. And, but that's just where I am. If people want to enjoy it, you know, more power to them. It's just about you know, what gets you through and what you can stand. And that's not just about sports. That's about everything. And now before we get to the Just Stand Up Award, a quick word about the Start Making Sense podcast. If you like Edge of Sports, you got to check out Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine. It's progressive news without the boring parts. Every week, host John Wiener takes a step back from the daily media deluge to talk to some really smart people. People like Naomi Klein on climate change or Keith Ellison on a strategy for the Democratic Party. And he's even had me on the show to talk about sports and politics. Catch a new episode of Start Making Sense every Thursday at thenation.com, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. This week, it goes to the women of USA Hockey. They are, as we speak, and this may change, but they are striking and boycotting the end-of-the-month world championships, of which they are the defending champions. They are doing so to fight for fair wages, for, for even like decent meals and basic respect from USA Hockey. It's a remarkable struggle. Let me read the words of Megan Dugan, who is the captain of Team USA. She said... We are asking for a living wage and for USA Hockey to fully support its programs for women and girls and stop treating us like an afterthought. We have represented our country with dignity and deserve to be treated with fairness and respect. Yo, hats off and big time solidarity to the women of USA Hockey. They've already gotten solidarity from Alex Morgan and the most famous person in the history of USA Hockey, the captain of the 1980 Miracle on Ice team, Michael Ruzioni. He tweeted out, solidarity and support for the USA women. So high hopes for them to actually win. Uh, They just got to stick together and not settle for any of the snake oil that USA Hockey is already putting out. And by the way, if this struggle is still ongoing, next week's show we have on star player Hillary Knight from USA Women's Hockey. She's agreed to be on the show. We're recording next week. And so can't wait to see what she has to say about the struggle, why they're doing it, and why they're willing to risk defending their championship if it means greater equity in their sport. So just stand up to Hillary Knight, to all the women of USA Hockey. And now, the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. And I never thought I'd say this, but I'm putting it to one of my heroes this week, Steve Kerr, coach of the Golden State Warriors who said that he thinks that uh, LeVar Ball, the father, who we talked about with Jamel Hill of Lonzo Ball and Lonzo Ball's two basketball-playing brothers, Steve Kerr said that he did not think LeVar Ball was doing his sons any favors by being so outspoken. And to this, you know, I have to say that I don't think the system itself does any favors to the Ball kids. And so I would much rather have a situation where parents were sticking up and advocating for their kids as they go through the indentured servitude that is the NCAA, as opposed to the alternative, which frankly is oftentimes even worse, where parents are either silent or parents and relatives are kind of like people sponging off their teenage kids who are trying to make it in the pros. I mean, this is a case of a father actually trying to help his kids take command of their destiny in a sport that far too often robs you of your self-determination. So I think Steve Kerr is just straight up wrong about this. And LeVar Ball, I mean, there's an echo with LeVar Ball in Richard Williams, the father of Serena and Venus Williams, because people used to uh, totally, totally trash and drag Richard Williams because he stood up for his daughters, because he said things that people called crazy. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Look at the Williams sisters today and compare them to so many other tennis stars and golf stars who start out as as these teenage phenoms and just sort of flame out. So Richard Williams obviously knew what he was doing. He was crazy like a fox, and I think LeVar Ball has earned that, frankly, that same right uh, when it comes to 
actually seeing if you can navigate your kids through shark infested waters I'll, I'll tell you this it's like if it was my kids there was nobody I would trust other than myself to help them through this and the idea that so many parents surrender that responsibility to coaches recruiters AAU people uh, sneaker reps that system is not working for young people so to me it's like for LeVar Ball, he's earned the benefit of the doubt just by the mere fact that he's standing up and taking on these forces that I've seen is so destructive to youth athletes. So that's my Just Sit Down Award. It pains me to do it. And yes, Steve Kerr, you are always welcome on this show. And now it's time for the segment that we're going to keep doing as long as we need to do it, and it's Kaepernick Watch. And this week I want to talk about a story that has just blown up. We've been talking about this for weeks on this show. But this week, it's really blowing up through the reporting of Mike Freeman at Bleacher Report, who has interviewed several general managers who are saying that they don't expect Colin Kaepernick to be signed and that he effectively signed away his right to be signed by uh, doing his anthem protest and speaking out against racism and police brutality. And more than enough people are pointing this out, but I'll say it as well. I mean, it is absolutely stunning to me that the NFL has an endless appetite for players who are caught enacting violence against women, but when you have an athlete whose great crime is actually speaking out against bigotry, that somehow is a bridge too far. I mean, it exposes so much about the National Football League. It exposes so much about the people who make decisions in the National Football League that Colin Kaepernick, who had 17 touchdowns, four picks last year, playing for a terrible team, cannot find a job in the National Football League. But I also want to echo what Jamel said, and she was effectively quoting Colin Kaepernick. This is what Colin Kaepernick said. He said, if they take football away, my endorsements from me, I know that I stood up for what is right. So he predicted this, like Jamel referenced. He knew the stakes when he decided that he was going to stand up and be heard. It's just the hope is that it's not something that discourages other athletes from speaking out. And, but obviously, you know, that's part of doing it is knowing this kind of sacrifice. And hey, by the next time, by the time you're listening to this show, maybe Colin Kaepernick was signed somewhere and that would be awesome too. But short term, it does not look good. And that's exactly why players need to organize themselves and have a position that says that any sort of blackballing of any athletes is utterly unacceptable for their political views. Uh, frankly, it makes me sick. So let's see what happens, though, with Colin Kaepernick. Well, that's all for this week on Edge of Sports. We got a t-shirt that's going to be coming out in the next week. Please look for that. Follow us on Twitter at Edge of Sports Pod for when the t-shirt drops. Very excited. Haven't had a shirt in years. And I love this design. It's going to be awesome. Can't wait to drop it on everybody. Uh, For my co-producers, David Tigabu and Dan Baker, thank you so much for joining us. Please listen in the back issues of the podcast at edgeofsportspodcast.com. Please subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. You can always contact me, Dave Zirin, over Twitter at Edge of Sports. We are out of here. Stay frosty, people. Peace. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.